Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the next episode of the Credit Crunch podcast, part of the FICC Focus uh, podcast stream. This is Mahesh Bhimalingam, Chief Chief Credit Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence is the research arm of uh, Bloomberg LLP, probably the largest research franchise in the world. Uh, Before we go on to the podcast, as always, I would like to uh, remind our listeners to B-I-S-T-R-T-E, which is the home of Credit Strategy Europe home of all proprietary credit data data and very valuable research which we regularly publish uh, so today given the huge movements in the bond markets as well as in the stock markets that we've seen led by central banks we've got a guest that can uh, shed light on all of those we have peter chatwell head of global macro strategies at mizuho mahesh thanks for having me on so uh, we are going to discuss, you know, pretty varied topics, varying from you know central banks all the way to credit fundamentals and so on in a you know easy two-way chat as always. So welcome, Peter. So you know the first question I think before we get to any sort of views on assets and so on is, what do we think is the central bank reaction function? What are your expectations? And how do they differ from them? So to just to set, get, put a context, if you look at what the market is pricing in terms of uh, the Fed, it is looking at a rate cut starting in June, July, you know, depending on, you know, 19% and 33%, uh, no, sorry, 19 base points and 33 base points. And on the ECB, the market is expecting a cut around June, similar similar time frame. So that is the first question. When will When will be the first cut? And the second question is, once they start, what sort of uh, shape are you going to get? Are you going to get a table mountain where, you know, it's going to be very gradual or is it going to be, and also it's going to be a very long pause or you get like a Matterhorn as the press seems to call it, which is a very steep uh, decline in uh, front-end rates. Peter. I'm not entirely convinced on either one of those. Uh, I think the the picture is much more complex than you know is easy to convey with the picture of of two different mountains. Uh, my expectation is that a lot of the rate cuts that are already priced in uh, are excessive, um, and that's really because I differ with how many of the central banks are, are, are assessing. Uh, the strength of the consumer. The household balance sheet has surprised to the upside, particularly in the US. Uh, and I think that there's more upside surprise to come. Um, the fact that we're now going back into a phase of positive real wage growth in the US, in Europe and in the UK, I think is something that bond market participants should take very seriously indeed, because a lot of the expectations of the Matterhorn, the massive rate cuts for next year, are premised on a collapse in the in the real economy. The household sector uh, and the corporate sector both really falling into trouble with, and, and this phrase I also dislike, the long and variable lags of the 400, 500 basis points of tightening uh, already in the financial system. I think one of the one of the issues that I have really with how the market is thinking that the tightening is excessive already is because it doesn't really take into account the size of the central bank balance sheets as they currently are and as they will be over the next couple of years. Um, the market is taking more of a flow uh, assessment of central bank easing or tightening. So... Uh, and this is how shadow rates are conventionally calculated. And I think it's the uh, it's actually the size of the balance sheet. So the stock of the balance sheet, which is of more importance here. 
Um, and there was uh, a good piece, so some good analysis, which I've seen published um, recently, which goes on to look at basically in the US economy, the importance of the boomers, mm. the, the amount of assets they have, but also their rising proportion of the population between now and 2035. And if you think about the average boomer, this is all about the average person. The average boomer has assets. The average boomer has savings. Uh, and so as rates have gone up, but as the stock of liquidity in the, in the central banks has also not come down anywhere near as much as it's gone up over the last 10 years, they're actually benefiting both from the rate hikes and they're benefiting from asset prices still being relatively high. And that is meaning that as central bank tightening, as has been done over the last two years, it's, not, it's actually juicing the quality of their balance sheet then this is where some of the upside surprise to consumption is coming from. And if the if the idea is now that there's going to be rate cuts next year, um, well, I think that that is still going to be allowing asset prices to be relatively high. And so I don't think that we're really going to um, have much of a tightening impact next year. If anything, if what we've got is the central banks putting their nominal interest rates down, as inflation declines further, um, then we're still going to be having an overall um, US and European economy, which is relatively stimulative. We, you know, and we can't overlook the, the fiscal side of things the, either. This brings me to the next question. If you look at what uh, Powell said specifically in on the day when he said, oh, for the time being, we probably don't need any rate hikes and then all markets went completely berserk. Mm. One key operative phrase he said is, we probably may not need to hike rates anymore because conditions are tight. Yes. But his statement by itself has ensured that conditions have eased. Yes. Because if you look at financial conditions and how they are calculated, you know, whether it is Bloomberg or some of the, you know, the investment banks that publish their own mm. uh, uh, financial conditions indices, the key components are long-term yields, uh, real yields, um, stock market uh, levels, vol, uh, so on and so forth. Mm. And what has uh, what has Powell done with his statement? By hoping for tight conditions, he's eased conditions. Exactly. So for our uh, benefit of our listeners, you know, if you look at the one of the most popular financial uh, indices, uh, financial conditions indices, down by half a percent and down by 0.2% in like, in like a week, as soon as uh, yeah. uh, you know, Powell Powell made those statements. So, my question to you is: Have will this easing in financial conditions continue, given central bank inaction, or do you think it will tighten without it, them doing anything? That's the question. It really depends on the on the rhetoric and also what I think energy prices are doing at the time. What's been interesting. Uh, when we've had the episodes of best steepening of the yield curve, which caused some interesting tightening of financial conditions, was that that was coinciding with energy prices moving higher. So my interpretation of what the market was doing, and I agreed with that, was the market was saying with the Fed's reaction function, they're running the risk of there being another round of inflation next oh. year. And that was being baked into larger term premia in the back end of the US Treasury curve. It coincided with the larger quarterly refunding announcement or the expectations of that. And yes, that's an important driver, but really the quarterly refunding is the manifestation of the massive US fiscal deficit. So that only needs to have a material and sustained impact on the back end of the yield curve through term premia if it is believed that the Fed is not offsetting the fiscal stimulus with tighter monetary policy. And during summer and during the last quarter, I believe that that was the case because we were getting to the Fed pause and we we're also getting to the low points. This quarter that we're in is, I think, going to have marked the low point in US headline CPI 
for the year and possibly for next year. Okay. And interesting view. So the next prong would be given the backdrop on what Powell has said, where do we think that inflation and growth, real, obviously, mm. uh, in both US and Europe are going to evolve? Assuming the central banks are true to their word in not doing much, or at least they're hoping not yeah. to do much, where do we get to? Now, before we you know, put uh, Peter on the spot, the, the market is currently forecasting, you know, next year, uh, US real GDP growth of just 1%. And uh, this is year, the full mm. year, year yeah, on year. Yeah. And uh, the Eurozone about 0.7%. Of more interest is the CPI, year-on-year mm. numbers for 2024. In the US, it is expected to drop down to 2.7% from 4.2%. In the Eurozone, it is expected to drop down again to 2.7%, but from 5.6%. Yeah. Now, how likely is this scenario going to play out? Like lower inflation, but also not so strong growth. Mm. Uh, if the central bank doesn't do much yeah. or is it or okay the, the related question is or is it contingent on the central bank actually cutting from you know probably may or june mm, I, I don't think we need the central banks cutting to achieve those numbers um you know i'd feel comfortable with those being baseline numbers um and i would think that they could be achieved if they kept rates where they are through the entirety of next year. So really what I'm saying there is that I see upside risks to both of those numbers, real GDP growth and inflation next year. I think inflation is running around about the 3.5% rate for the year. Um, it's really been flattered to the downside by massive base effects this year. Correct. And I think that that has meant that uh, the market has focused on uh, headline inflation, you know, falling to to three percent, you know, perhaps going to print at two, even though core inflation uh, is still printing with a four handle, um, you know, and and if we think forward to next year, we don't get the basic base effects anymore that have been flattering us so much. Just at the point where the central banks are going on pause, we're likely within a within a quarter to see inflation starting to go up again. And I think that that is going to be really troubling for the market to, to understand. But it's actually not necessarily going to be bad for, for, for risk assets, in, in my mind, unless we then expect the central banks to change their reaction function in response to that. So there, yeah, there are some interesting states that one has got to try to get their mind around. But if the central banks stick with their existing path, the peak is almost in or is in, there will be cuts as long as uh, inflation moderates next year. I think that's actually a, a difficult scenario to come around to. Um, I think that the, the, the macro data are going to be overshooting uh, and that if they leave it unchecked is going to be positive for risk assets. If they have to check it by putting yields up further, then, of course, we have a, another year where there are periods of, of every asset selling off. So, in effect, Peter, you are saying that in case the Fed or the ECB, mm. they actually do what the market is pricing in terms of cutting, you probably will not hit those numbers. You're going to have much higher inflation numbers. Yeah, financial conditions will be too will easy. Will be too easy. Okay. Now, that brings us to the point in reverse where what do you think precisely in terms of when will they cut and when they cut what sort of trajectory are we going to look for uh so really it depends on if they have changed the the path and if they actually deliver more tightening next year uh, rather than delivering the path that is priced in um, if they try to deliver the price the path that is priced in then I can see there being no cuts at all next year. And if anything, there will be more effort from the Fed and the ECB to accelerate their quantitative tightening. I think some point academically, they've got to realise that the reason that the neutral rate has risen so much, the reason that uh, this 
tightening has actually delivered less tightening than they expected is because of the residual stock on the balance sheet. So if they come round to that, there is room for more tightening than is, is currently priced and certainly less easing than is priced. So essentially we are saying that if the the market is right on one thing but not on both. Mm. So either they get the trajectory right or the timing right. So if the trajectory is as priced, it, the cuts have to be delayed. Mm. Or if the trajectory is flatter, you can probably have an earlier first cut. Which do you think is more likely? Um, well, this is where it becomes a bit controversial. It's election year next that year. That is true. Okay, yeah. so that is very, very important. Election year in the US and in the UK, and there are some important elections in Europe as well. So I would think that the central banks are going to be erring or away from the hawkish side. Mm. So in that scenario, they're going to try to postpone um, their, their cuts as long as possible. So they're not going to be trying to be hawkish, but the inflation and growth data are going to be running away from them maintaining control mm. of the the inflation risks. So if there are cuts next year, they have to be later, in my opinion, than is currently priced. Mm. And that is going to mean that, say, around the middle of next year, the markets are going to be starved of some of the fuel that is currently baked into them through the cuts that are expected. Correct. Now, that brings us to the big question. What will that mean for government bond markets particularly the yield curve so if you look at the yield curve now i mean we've hit five percent on the treasuries yeah and then powell did what he did mm. and all the drop in the in the treasury yields is all really it is it's not inflation right yes uh, so he's really significantly eased financial markets yeah by bringing real yields down so the first question is what are we thinking about the raw tenure in terms of nominal? And if we split it into the break-even and the and the real yield components, which one will be driving that move? Uh, I'm assuming given your view, it's not going to move much. Mm. Uh, but we will discuss that. Uh, and do you see that playing into the Fed's financial conditions uh, theory? Right. Yeah, great questions. So the outlook for 10-year yields, in my opinion, for the rest of this year, we're going to be ranging between four and a half and five. Mm -hmm. um, and then for next year, the supply taps are back open. The market will not just re, you know, remember the size of the fiscal deficits Deficit. that we've got globally, um, but um, you know, we're going to start to see the realized so spot inflation data has also picked up. So then I can see 10-year uh, yields going higher and really next year the curve is going to be most strongly determined by the 10-year yield itself going up. Right. And I, I think you're not going to get much from the Fed and from the ECB in terms of deliberately taking real rates higher. They're just not going to be in that frame of mind. It seems like they're, they're not and they think that two and a half in the US is some sort of cap. I think that that is a very short time framed view. I think they need to look back at when the economy was not in the QE regime uh, and to see that really to, to slow the economy down and to deal with inflation, the, the real rates were normally going up to three and a half percent to deal with that. Um, so that means that the move in the 10 year yield is likely to be more determined by inflation break-evens. So inflation risk premium going up rather than a real rates risk premium going up. So it may mean that there is less sensitivity overall for financial conditions mm. uh, through the real rates component Correct. next year, more about an inflation break-even component. Right. So this yield move possibly higher after this mm. uh, rally and so on that you mentioned, will probably not tighten uh, financial conditions as Powell 
is potentially hoping for. Yeah, I think that that's a, a reasonable expectation and would would gel with, I think, what the, the Fed um, may be comf- most comfortable with. In you know, they're trying to solve a problem of many variables, um, but they, they have an election next year. Um, you know, we're in uh, a situation where geopolitical risks are elevated and they, they have significant involvement. And we got the politics um, of this debt ceiling yeah. every few months. And that, 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 that is also one driver of yeah. treasury premium nowadays. Yeah, isn't it? I, I, so I don't, I don't really think they're going to be acting against that. I think they are still going to be delivering the soft landing uh, rhetoric. And the soft landing rhetoric means keeping real rates lower than where, where they really should be to deal with inflation. Um, so it carries on. And then the 10-year yield goes up on inflation risk premium. Now, what would that mean for the curve, let's say, two stents? Currently, it is around like minus 45, mm. or inverted. And the market is pricing in, it will get to flat. Yes. Do you believe in that, given your view? Yeah, or... I, I believe it gets to flat. Uh, and I believe it... This it is by end of 2024. Yeah, oh, right. By the end of 2024, it will have disinverted um, by really significant margin. Um, you know, perhaps by more than 100, it, it may be uh, uh, more than 100 basis points disinverted, so upward sloping uh, wow. by that point. Okay, and this is going to be led by long-term inflation pricing but feeding A in. combination of the long-term inflation pricing feeding in, but then also, you know, if we think that the market is somewhat obsessed about Fed rate cuts this year, next year when the Fed, if I'm right, that they are reluctant, more reluctant to, to ease than the market is pricing right now, then by the time we get to the end of next year, with uh, with all of that waiting having been been there, I think that the the market will really be rampant in its pricing and its expectation of rate cuts. So the steepening, I think, will be driven both by the two-year yield going a bit lower by the end of next year mm. uh, and the 10-year rate having a lot more inflation premium on it. Uh, and and that but would you be... would you would think by the end of next year though we are going to end up much steeper than what the market is pricing now. Yeah, I believe so. Right. Similar view on on the ten year bund and the bund curve. Yes, and I think that that's going to be a really interesting uh, part of the market because then that that is going to be breaking through to some record high uh, bund yields. Uh, you know, the euro area average yield. Uh, may not uh, break through record highs because the average yield had significant uh, premium to it when they've had a previous periphery crisis, uh, crises. But yeah, we, we can go, uh, I believe, higher in long-term yields uh, in all of these developed market rates, really because the inflation risk premium uh, are still somewhat underwhelming, I think. Um, you know, there's a lot of mean reversion priced into, into the interest rate markets. Um, and mean reversion strategies can really only be held on for so long before, um, you know, the underperformance of them then sees them consigned to the, or, you know, put on pause for a time being. Um, and that's really what is helping to keep mid, you know, midterm, we call it belly, and long-term yields much lower than, than I think is reasonable in this macroeconomic environment. So from a 2.4% bond now, mm. by the end of 2024, at what area are you looking at? I think I think we should be looking uh, at three and a half to four. Oh my, that is going to kill, kill, kill so many bond portfolios. Well, it's going to stress them. Yeah. Um, and it's going to make the the you know the credit investments or or you know government bond uh, spread components that much more important. Looking at the credit market, you conduct your, your, your surveys and you have conversations with a lot of investors. What do you expect for next year? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a multi-pronged question, I would think. So, you know, first thing is, what do we th- where do we think credit is now, given all these gyrations in the last month or month and a half? We've sold, mm. off. We've sold off quite a bit. Uh, in October, particularly in the riskier portions of credit. Yeah. 
investment grade sort of held in even that widened uh, but let's say high yield cocos uh, even leverage loans mm. uh, there was a bit of widening uh, in spreads yes and we ended up with uh, losses in all the risky asset classes and in investment grade we got saved by powell right towards the end yeah. and we just ended up barely you know making some total return gains but excess return losses yes so where is credit now i think the first thing is you know if you look at wall adjusted credit mm. uh from very rich we used to be very rich you know po- after the post banking crisis rally and so on it is now crossed fair value yeah and investment grade is fair value high yield is cheap just just about when i yeah. say cheap it's about 0.3 standard deviations cheap uh cocos cheap leverage loans uh nearly fair value mm. sterling slightly cheap and so on so credit has just come up from being quite rich to rich and to fair value now mm. now the question is does fair value mean that there is not going to be any more widening no in general credit always overshoots yeah especially given uh, peter's view of what uh, is going to happen on the long term yield front particularly on given what we expect on the fed mm. if that view does play out now uh, you're going to have spreads positively correlated to uh, to yields yes not negatively correlated anymore so that would mean there is a bit more pain um mm. coming down the road despite spreads being in the slightly cheap territory for now yes now when will that happen it is very difficult to predict it depends on uh you know other factors uh but where is credit in terms of uh, what our investors think right now mm. yeah as you mentioned our survey our survey is quite clear in saying you know they believe that returns are going to be positive for this quarter yeah but they do believe that spreads are still net rich and as a result they are underweight so essentially people are long on carry they're cautiously yeah they're cautiously long mm. let's put it that way uh they're underweight they ha- they don't have a record amount of cash in the portfolios the cash percentage has dropped but it is still quite quite hefty so the record cash we saw was 7 in let's say the first second quarters yeah. and also last year uh but now it is down to about 5 it went down to 4.5 it's not about 5 so 5% in in terms of a real money portfolio how much yes. cash do they hold uh so cash is still it is not at its lows let's put it that way yeah it's not like they're all very aggressive and the change in the cash proportion is that as caution comes in and out or have there been a change through flows as well uh no it is generally i mean it's very difficult to break it down yes i can I will address the flows in a in a separate topic. Okay. Uh, but this is all together. Right. How much cash are they keeping? Mm. All together, because the survey doesn't split in yes. terms of the in terms of the question. This is how much cash would you keep or slash or are you keeping in your portfolio? Yeah. Uh, so that's in terms of client sentiment. It is cautiously long. Mm. Uh, they do. They are not gung ho. They are still slightly underweight on the riskier portions. Yeah. they are all want to be long on the low risk portion so investment grade still beats high yield uh edges it it used to be an overwhelming buy yeah it just edges it now uh but uh, yeah uh, would it change next year i think it is very much a function of how the 10 year bond moves yes as it if it does get to your 3% i don't think it is going to look great for uh, for credit because then you're going to be thinking huh the risk free itself is yeah, is 3 yeah. the see? low beta is going yes. is going to underperform yes exactly uh that brings us to the flows question that you asked yeah so how have credit flows done as uh, as we published quite extensively in our credit fund flow report this year more or less all through uh you saw a bit of you know as we came in Yes, all of credit got flows in because mm. we got murdered in 2022. Yeah. So first quarter we saw flows into high yield and in investment grade. Then we had the banking crisis. Yes. Then some money went off. Now from then to now it is largely investment grade led. Right. Uh in high yield it is sort of flattish to 
flat is to mildly negative depending on the month. Mm. Uh, so if you look at it as fund flows as percentage of AUM, we are we are talking about you know every month plus or minus 0.2 percent in high yield, but in investment grade it's like 0.6, 0.8, 0.7 percent. Wow, right. Yeah, investment grade has been leading mm. credit fund flows. Now we need to take it with a pinch of caution because when I say fund flows and we are measuring as we are measuring it in terms of positive negative in the investment grade universe bulk of investment grade sits in entities that we cannot track yes. so insurance portfolios sovereign wealth funds mm. pension funds and these guys don't report yeah right so among all reported funds this is the story that's why we normalize fund flows by aum you see yeah there is no point in reporting raw fund flow that mm. doesn't mean much so fund flows has a percentage of aum yeah uh, the those are the numbers i mentioned investment grade clearly leads uh, is the story different if you include everyone on the margin probably not mm. because that's what you see in actual spread action right yeah so if you see investment grade is still holding in you know in october it was only like five or six wider yeah well high yield was like 32 wider mm. so the uh, investment grade flows still seem to reflect what our survey says yeah even though it is all trackable yeah okay then there's a decent amount of cash to be put to work. What are you expecting in terms of the assets to be to be hoovered up or not for next year? What's the availability? Now, good question. Now, the, that availability is a function of financial conditions leading to credit supply. Yeah. Right? So, if financial conditions are like what we are now, thanks mm. to the Powell-led uh, easing, yeah. even though he didn't want it, you might hope for better credit condition, better credit conditions, better credit supply. Because yeah. what we've had last two three months is quite terrible, mm. like extremely terrible. Like two thousand twenty two was a write off yeah. anyway, right? So we've had big drop in investment grade net supply. You know, I I'm not a big fan of measuring gross supply. That's for the banks mm. because as an investor. Gross supply is not what matters. It's net supply. Yes. So investment grade, we saw a huge drop in net supply. Mm. Uh, and high yield went big time negative. We we had a minus 40 billion year last year. Yeah. Terrible. In, index rank. 2023, conditions are easier, by the way, as we've discussed. Yeah. But we're not getting supply because aggressive pre-funding before. Mm. And costs have gone up. Yeah. Right. And because costs have gone up, the if you look at the gap between the cost of a new bond versus an old bond on average mm. for a corporate, in investment grade, it's about 2.6%. In high yield, it's more than 4%. Yeah. Why are they going to issue unless they need to? Yeah. Right? So this leads to, led to a problem this year. Okay, the first quarter was okay. In some new year, good sentiment. Because remember, we've been rallying from October. Yes. So in the first quarter, it was all right, barely. In high yield, investment grade was okay. But after that, it really tailed off. Mm. And in the third quarter, last month, despite Powell, we've had investment grade negative net supply. Right. Minus 18 billion in a month. And it was quite terrible. High yield, as usual, was negative. Uh, and it's negative everywhere, more or less. Mm. Uh, even in the leveraged loan market, it's front-ended, no duration, you see. Yeah. Uh, but even there, the spreads are too wide. So even there, you're not getting too much supply. So to your uh, to answer your question, in terms of availability of credit assets for investors to buy in Europe, mm. we have an availability problem. Yeah. Which actually is playing well for the investor in terms of returns. Yeah. So for easier financial conditions, if they keep getting you cash in terms of fund flows, mm. you'll have a problem in investing them. And which is probably why that cash percentage is not dropping. Yeah. Uh, because he, the index is dwindling. The high yield index has been dwindling from end of 2021 to now. We probably lost about 65, 70 billion. And it's not a joke. Mm. Right? It's quite terrible. 20% down. No, okay. 15% down at least. 
in that sort of a scenario, spreads are artificially held, supported because you don't have net supply. Yeah. If there is an automatic demand uh, shrinkage. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Investment grade, uh, positive, but it is not as positive as usual. Mm. Uh, and so, which is why, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, that uh, if inflation doesn't fall as much and these guys would be forced to hold or to uh, more aggressively do quantitative tightening. Yeah. The Fed, uh, thankfully, is not relevant to us because they don't have much credit yeah. on their balance sheet. The ECB does. Mm. They have about 330 billion the last time I counted. Yeah. And... Every month, I mean, leave off December and August because they're very light months. Every month, they're running off at least two and a half billion. And that two and a half billion is not causing any indigestion, you see. Mm. Remember, running off means no sale. Yeah. Unlike the BOE, yes. which has gotten rid of the entire corporate bond portfolio, the BOE had about 20 billion sterling yeah. at, at its peak. They have written it off in about... 12, 13 months. And what was the amount roughly that the Fed had as well? Because didn't the Fed, they had credit, um, but then they were, they were very early to dispose of it. Yes. So I think at the peak corporate holdings in those two secondary and primary facilities that they had, yes, yes. They together they added up to like, so I think 150, 200 billion. Yeah. And then they wound it. And remember, the US market is of a, nice, in a yeah. different league in terms of size. Yeah. So... Just to give our listeners that perspective, the ECB even now mm. holds a third of eligible assets. So, in in the overall European credit space, yeah, if you take the eligible universe, the ECB owns one third of it. The Fed owns zero. Yes, the Bank of England owns zero. Mm. So the ECB is a very outsized presence, and. The view that there is going to be need for more tightening mm. is something we need to consider because you're going to have additional supply yes. with the ECB cells. Yeah. So, I mean, just to give you, give our viewers an idea, at its at it, in its most rampant form, the Bank of England on a twenty billion portfolio, tiny. Yeah. yeah they were running about one point two billion a month. Right. Sales. So, I mean, look at that. That is about 6%, right? Mm. 6% a month. I mean, 6% a month. If the ECB does something like that, it is not going to be fun. Yeah. So, even if, let's say, 2.5 billion runoff and the ECB does another 2.5 billion on top of it, that itself will be a pretty serious impact. Yes. Actually. Yeah, that's interesting because... Thinking about net supply in European bond markets, bringing rates into Govies, it as yeah. well. I think net supply for Govies is going to be slightly higher next year, according to projections I've seen. Yeah, because they have into... to borrow, isn't it? Because of the deficits. Yeah, it's the deficits plus the lack of reinvestment now. Correct. So with the QT, net supply is, I think, projected to be higher next year than it has been this year. Yeah, terrible. Which has made credit look really, really attractive as an asset Correct. class and, and has helped those spreads stay in. Yeah, to the benefit of our listeners. In, in credit, in Europe particularly, there is this automatic mechanism where the market automatically thins out mm. when yields go up or when conditions become too tight, there yes. won't be any supply. Yeah. Right? And that, that sort of regulates your spread action. So we had... A, I have to say, European credit held very well. Yeah. Given the upheavals happening elsewhere in rates mm. and in uh, and in US credit, for example, in US credit, you know, they are used to this drug of debt-filled shareholder uh, buybacks. Yes. Debt-filled M and A. Uh, so the US just prints for the heck of it. Mm. We don't, as you can see, even investment grade is negative. Yeah. Now net supply. So. I think we have this self-regulatory mechanism. So next year too, yeah. if the very bearish Peter's view pops, uh, you know, comes out to be true, mm. if the Bund is heading towards, you know, beyond three and towards three and a half, or trust me, you're not going to much, get much supply. Yes, because we've checked, we've checked the maturity wall next year, 
the maturity wall in high yield is lower than this year because they've all done rampant calling in 2020-21 you see yes. so this year high yield maturities were about you know 65 70 billion which is why you ended up with this negative 30 yeah already by the way it is negative 30 already and we still have two months left mm. right so next year the maturity wall is only 40 billion so i am actually thinking despite a potential yield rise yeah we might end up with positive net supply in yeah. high yield because even in worst of the worst conditions i would expect at least like 50 60 billion uh, high yield to print mm. that would end up with plus 10 plus 20 uh, compared yeah. to the minus 30 we've had investment grade maturity wall next year is about 325 billion yeah uh, this year we printed 500 index eligible gross so if it does a 500 i mean given your view we probably will not do a 500 mm. We'll probably do like a 450. We'll end up with like a 125 net. Mm. Uh, currently, this year we are running at about uh, we are running at about 110, and we have two months left. Yeah. So it'll be so the net supply in investment grade will amount to probably to the same. High yield will probably be more. If it is easier conditions than what you predicted, it'll definitely be more. Yes. This excludes ECBQT. Yeah, when I say QT, yes. sales, yeah, yeah. sales, because nobody is budgeting sales yet. Mm. The ECB has made no noise about selling. Yeah, if they do talk about selling, then we then it's a it's a slightly different ballgame. I wonder. You know, for them, if they do have, they've staked a lot of credibility on you know this being the peak in in uh, policy rates four percent. Yeah, and they have, you know, they've not shown a, an urgency. To do more QT, you know, mm. because the mm. PEP portfolio is is rather political. Yes, you know, yes, and May... because because it holds a lot of this weaker government uh, debt yes. without any capital, uh, you know, capital restriction, capital yes. ratio restrictions. So the PEP, I think, winding down the PEP mm. is probably the last thing they'll do. Yeah. So I wonder if if the CSPP, the, you know, the corporate paper. Could yep. be a path of least resistance. Yeah, if they do, the, but the corporates can't strike. Corporates, yeah. co corporates can't, uh, you know, lobby you in the European Commission, right? So, mm. is the, that's what the Bank of England did. They still have a truckload of gilts. Yes, but they sold the entire corporate bond portfolio, hammering sterling credit every time they did. Yeah, sterling credit underperformed. I mean, it's already a less liquid asset class. Yes. And on top of it, you got the central bank selling. Mm. So consistently, sterling credit underperformed. But thankfully, that yoke is off that asset class. Yeah. So from now on, it should probably keep pace mm -hmm. with the euros. Given that the attention is on the euros in terms of future central bank action. Yeah. Now, before we get further deeper into credit fundamentals and defaults, da, 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 I think we should uh, first pay attention, or probably of interest to Peter as well, is what do we think of, given this background view, what do we think of the earnings outlook next year? Yeah. Well, I think the most important macro determinant of earnings uh, really is nominal GDP growth. And how does that compare to uh, the interest rates prevailing in the market? You know, thinking really, really simply, how mm. is consumption going to be um, how, uh, how a top line revenue is going to be and how much of an issue uh, may an increase in costs be in crimping uh, the, the transformation of revenues into, into earnings. And I think the fundamental point or the most important point as I see it is that if we still have the central banks running the economies on balance too hot rather than too cold, mm allowing the the inflation risks to continue to run and not tightening through real rates mm. allowing inflation risk premium to to rise mm. it's not necessarily going to be hurting uh, earnings yeah so you're thinking there will be some earnings froth yeah i would think so and you know it's also going to be pushing financial conditions on the easier side you know, so it can be self-fulfilling to a degree there as well. Right. So I think so if you fork out the equity outlook into two parts, mm. the multiple and the EPS, 
you are saying that the eps portion i think will probably be okay but the multiples are going to take a hit from your underlying yes i would expect the the multiples to come lower simply because there's going to be more attractive returns and you know income even hmm. available from the other asset classes you hmm. know imagine at the end of next year we have a disinverted yield curve hmm. we have spreads in corporate paper just you know currently where they are meaning there's an, in, an, yep. an you know an, an additional return there it's meaning that the the outlook for equities becomes that bit more challenging you want to capture the earnings but do you really need to pay up when you when credit you know the bond market yep. is that much more attractive relative very very valid point which is why fund flows are the way they are yeah so mom and pop everybody is now thinking investment grade now pays 4.7% is no joke yeah 4. Point, okay i mean that that depends on where the underlying uh, bond is anywhere between 4 and half to 4.7 high yield now pays you 8.4% yeah 8.4% on a three duration asset yes guess what so i mean people should be looking at that now so let me take what peter said in terms of earnings into credit metrics for the purpose of our listeners so credit metrics actually held in quite well 2022 and 2023 in europe why because as i said self regulatory mechanism mm. in a downturn what happens is we don't issue so forget investment grade junk metrics held yeah so slow down you would expect i mean the favorite measure in credit for by all credit pms and analysts is the leverage stat uh, you can all uh, look at it on uh, bastrt the leverage stat hasn't gone up mm. even in junk and it and you would expect it to have gone up given uh, you know earnings drop right earnings have dropped uh, and you know we higher borrowing costs and so on no why no issuance yeah so your debt to ebitda yes ebitda may have dropped but debt has dropped as well so particularly in junk it only went up by like a one decimal point yeah so the, even the coverage ratio uh ebitda to interest yes your interest costs have gone up yes yes front end rates have gone up but my i am not issuing so i am still on the old right old yeah. borrowing costs so even though my ebitda has dropped my interest hasn't gone up by much, gone up by much so my coverage ratio hasn't dropped by much too mm. i mean there is a negative move in all these stats i, I don't deny that mm. but it's tiny yeah i so, think the 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 sense i get as well um is that just because market yields have gone up so much policy rates have gone up so much there is this expectation that it feeds through into corporates and households like that you know almost immediately yeah, the reality very different very different so that brings me to the point what do i mean you heard peter mahesh and so on but what do independent credit people think so we got the credit agencies yeah so if you look at the credit agencies rating actions guess what investment grade minimum 2 times the number of upgrades as downgrades on average minimum in some quarters we are getting like 3x 4x yeah in junk it is still above 1 i mean it hovers between above 1 and just below 1 yeah uh, in terms of upgrades and downgrades so quality particularly in ig is improving mm. in high yield is holding now that translates to you know how many rising stars and fallen angels that are we seeing yeah so from the index we publish it every month in our monthlies there are more rising stars than fallen angels even now Mm. Yes, there is a fallen angel every month or every alternate month now. Yes, I agree that the fallen angel flow has gone up from zero, but there is a rising star flow. Yeah, and the rising star flow is still well above the fallen angel flow. Mm. So, credit quality is not dropping as of now. I wouldn't. I may not say it is significantly improving, uh, as the rating agencies seem to say. Uh, the Q4 numbers will be very interesting to see. if they still hold up at twice the number of upgrades as yes. downgrades continuing on the same line how many defaults yeah not much so okay the ca- casino whether you include it or not is a, is a question but even if you include casino even if we uh, we manually actually look at all the candidate default credits in the index 
triple C minus and below. If all of them default today, you're going to end up with a 2% default rate. Mm. 2% by par, right? The peak pandemic default ratio is 1.8%. So as all of them are not going to default, I think we're going to peak index default rate at, at around, you know, 1.5-ish, maybe. Yeah. Now that's a 2024 later half story, depending mm. on how much slowdown we are going to have. Uh, I don't see a default wave in Europe. Yeah. Now, uh, it might sound like a con controversial statement, but it's been right mm. till now. And I suddenly can't see, even if we include casino, how a 0.35%, including casino, and 0.23% without casino yeah. will suddenly go up to, you know, one and a half. Mm. So I'm wondering, is there a risk scenario? You know, I, I've I've painted a picture of uh, the central banks running things uh, on the on the relatively easy side, but not being able to to take rates down until you know later than the market expects. Is there a risk scenario where we could have higher default rates? Because yeah, I'm I'm, I'm in agreement with you on this. Yeah, so. The risk scenario, we, I'll split it into two parts. One is risk scenario for spread and risk scenario for default. Yeah. I think the risk scenario for default is probably going to be, you need these very difficult conditions to persist for a long time. Yes. Because other than those few that I've mentioned, there are like five names. Mm. Rest of it is okay. So if you look at uh, stress and distress as priced by the market. Yeah. And by the way, quite of it is influenced by rates. Mm. Bonds trading 60 to 80 and under 60. Under 60 is distress and 60 to 80 is stress. Distress is now about 5.6% and stress is about like 10 and a half is percent. So we're looking at about 16, 16 and a half total stress. Mm. No big deal. You know, we were at like 40 yeah. in, in some bad days in 2022 uh, and in the pandemic, mm. right? So 16% is no big deal. I mean, 5.6% distress, typically it tends to be like a third at its peak. Yeah. We are looking at my numbers. So like, mm. you know, 1.6, 1.7%. Yeah. At worst in terms of default. But in terms of spread though, I think I've already mentioned, if the central banks get it wrong and as a result, normal yields go up. Yeah. As you say. And if they go up at speed, Mm. then you'll end up with positive correlation. Yes. Uh, particularly on the investment grade side. Yeah. Now, uh, high yield less so. And as a result, I would see negative total returns. Mm. Uh, already, as you can see, the investment grade total return story, even this year, is a slave to what is happening in rates. Yes. High yield, different story. Uh, because the carry is a very hefty number and, and the spreads move slightly differently. Investment grade, Returns as well as spreads, interestingly, are now pretty well correlated to rates. Yeah. Speed, particularly. If it is gradual, then it's good. Mm. Then it's negatively correlated. But once it is at the speed that you are saying it might be we are at risk, mm. now I do worry. Um, I hope the easy scenario plays out for yeah. my investors. Uh, but that is as you clearly mentioned in this uh, extensive podcast, mm. I probably may not be the case. Yeah. I don't know the speed of it, though. Just like, you know, in credit, there is a self-regulating mechanism. Yeah. We still have the central banks. If if the speed is excessive, then they'll, they'll then be then seeing they'll financial conditions. Correct. Tighten and... Yeah. Yeah. So any last questions for me before we switch to rapid fire on you? Well, I want to know, um, you know, we've talked about high grade or sorry, investment grade and high yield. What about the alternatives? Ah, you know, what question. do you think for those? Right. So the number one alternative I see in credit uh, is leverage loans. Yeah. Uh, extremely low volatility asset class compared to these two because they're not bonds. Very low rates duration. So they they've done very well whenever these rate spikes uh, we've had and then caused uh, chaos in the bond markets. Mm. Uh, the leverage loan market that way is very well protected. But that said, the spread component still is related to what is happening in the junk bond market. Yes. Right? The spread component has been 
tad wider in the last uh, month or month and a half in the uh, credit weakness yeah but otherwise it's held up very well uh, remember the loan market has its own natural buyer yeah. the clo market yeah uh, so how is the clo market looking the clo arbitrage has dropped significantly from last year to now it used to be about 450 bips now it's around 225 bips half mm. right so even though loan spreads are higher the arb is much lower yeah uh, right because the tron spreads during the rally haven't come down the triple a guys still seem to want uh, have their cake and uh, you know eat their cake and have it yes so given that arb is low i struggle to see too much clo printing and mm. as a result that that clo bid being a bit lukewarm mm-hmm. uh, it will still be about 60% of net loan supply but i don't see it as you know near 90% and then powering the loan market yes so that's on the loan side in terms of other uh, loans and clos in terms of other alternative assets you got this private credit market very difficult to get hold of any data yeah but what i hear is uh, you know i've ha- i've held a round table on that in the uh, global credit uh, forum uh, that happened a month and a half ago and the general view is that you pay about 125 to 150 basis points extra mm. for the joy for you being the only or sharing with maybe another investor full tranche reporting only to you no wall basically yeah. because you're holding it to you on your book uh the investor will the issuer will have to pay you 125 to 150 extra for that mm. so there is active interest from uh investors yes now how much of that will be taken up by issuers is the question right so if financial conditions get tighter i think there will be more demand for uh, for private credit yes because banks are not lending on the loan books uh investors are worried about worried about duration risk mm. we, we, that's the sort of environment we are talking right yeah so you might get private loans sitting on uh investors balance sheets yes uh and the, and for the investor there is the carry upside mm. for the issuer nobody needs to know how you are performing in terms of uh you know your maintenance covenants and so on which is the problem if you do it in the syndicated market yes right so so that's where we are so are you ready for your rapid fire hit me peter so first question rates long or short Uh, view sh- view all the way until end of 2024 still short still short end of 2023 oh still short from here i would say still short from here uh rates or credit uh credit for the excess return i think yep. um i i think it will still act as a buffer uh as rates are, are going higher yep um and i think that that is is going to be good but it has done so just fyi yeah. 2022 bloodbath credit beat rates yes 2023 clearly credit beat rates i think the main challenge though is if i'm right that rates curves are steepening a lot mm. there is finally going to be uh, a decent return to be had from moving into duration to pick up term premium yeah and that will compete with credit risk premium true uh we can extend duration in credit yes. in investment grade particularly in the us less so in europe but in high yield you really can't because they are front end yeah yeah uh, so that brings us to credit or equity next year i w- i would be moving between the two at times um because of the fed or because of the central bank easing error Yes, that you think. yes, that's yeah. right. You see, because you know, I am expecting that for the bond market, there is going to be a period of negative price action okay. as 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 rates Correct. bear steepen, and at that point, probably equities will be suffering a bit, but maybe not quite as much as bonds. Yeah. So, so for in that point, in a bear market, equities may actually be be acting well, as a safe haven bond bear market precisely perverse markets <laughs> uh so last question um europe or us i'm afraid it's still us yeah always the case isn't it not not absolutely always uh if i in could... the stock markets it's always the case yes in bond markets probably not if i could add 
a currency overlay to this. Yep. Perhaps some of that underperformance may be, may, you know, uh, may be mitigated. But geopolitics uh, are still a big focus of mine. I think there'll still be a big focus for next year. Yep. Um, and I, I think that as a net energy producer, and as a, an economy which can benefit in, you know, geopolitical instability, mm. I would think that those fundamentals still mean that U.S. assets can outperform European. Yeah. Thank you, Peter, for a very extensive podcast. Thank you, Mahesh. And for the benefit of our listeners, for all the data that has been mentioned in this podcast, please refer to BISTRTE. And I'll be back with you next month with another you know, well-decorated guest and for an interesting discussion. Uh, thank you all and see you next time.